Welcome back to your listeners to the Dish with Dina podcast. My guest today is Carly Aroldi, a fellow East Coaster and licensed professional counselor whose work with children and their caregivers offers a distinctive perspective on human development, interpersonal neurobiology, and creativity. Carly and I chat about the Sundays spent at our respective grandmother's houses, creating moments of me time in our busy schedules and finding the fun in food. So sit back, enjoy the conversation, and let's dish. Welcome, Carly Aroldi, to the Dish with Dina podcast. I'm excited to interview you, and I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to spend some time with me here. Same. Thank you so much. I was so honored when we connected, and I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. Thanks for having me. I agree, and I think so too. And I wanted to say this out loud because it is not necessarily rare, but it's sometimes not often in our older years, in our established careers that we get a chance to make new friends. And so will you tell our listeners how we came to know each other? How did we meet? So we met in a Facebook group where you had kind of shared um, what you were doing with your work and the podcast that you had out there. And when you kind of wrote the title of it, it totally resonated with me because of the work that I do, right? Because you're really thinking about early memories and early childhood experiences and how that influences later life, living later in life. And I was like, yep, that's exactly what I do. And especially around kind of the food piece, because, you know, I work with families, especially families with young kids, and it's always a trigger. And so part of the work that I like to do is to kind of say, how can we lessen that? And so when you shared what you were doing, I was like, this is a perfect little matchup. And then you said, yes, let's do it together on the podcast. So I love it. You know, I don't love technology for some reasons, but for connecting me to new and exciting people, I'm I'm appreciative of Facebook. I have other things to say about Facebook, but that's I, what I'll say in the positive way. I will say it sometimes feels like social media is a necessary evil. Yes. And, mm-hmm. But there also is something about the like-mindedness finding yes. each other yeah. right? the fact that we were both in that group together and yeah. we were kind of encouraged to connect with yeah. other people of like minds and there were thousands of people in that group. I know so I'm very fortunate and, yeah and everyone's doing cool stuff and that's yeah. one thing I love about it is like you connect with people you're like well I didn't even know this existed this podcast yes. and so to connect it in that way I was like this is amazing I also believe that there's no such thing as coincidence in that way too. So whatever you will be sharing with us today, that that information might resonate with the listeners and that might grow yeah. the audience and that that somewhere somewhere down the line, somebody right, might remember how to implement some of the things that we, you and I are maybe talking about or just yeah. whatever our stories that come up. So speaking of stories, let's go back yeah. a little bit more in time before you and I met and yep. tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Where did you grow up? What are some of your earliest childhood memories as it revolves around food? Um, So I grew up in Connecticut in the Northwest Hills of Connecticut, a little town called Litchfield. And sometimes I tell people, if you've ever watched Gilmore Girls, that was like similar to my existence growing up of just this kind of like small New England town. Everyone kind of knows each other. But um, so I was, it's interesting because I was, since I knew we were talking, I've been thinking a lot about this, but I was a really picky, picky eater like real picky eater. And when I was thinking about like my memories, a lot of it was around like, oh, I don't want to eat that. I don't want to eat that. But one thing that was standing out to me was we would go every Sunday to my grandma's house for dinner. And she lived close by, um, like in 45 minutes. And she, we would walk in at like, you know, maybe two o'clock in the afternoon because dinner's at four o'clock on a Sunday, which I still love. And I, the smells, that's what it was. Like you would walk in and there was warmth. She had this tiny little house, just this tea, it was like three rooms, this tiny little house. And the smells, it was always like a pot roast or a meatloaf or something that like was all enveloping. And the weird thing about it was I loved the smells of it. I loved the look of it, but I didn't love the taste of it. So I would come and like enjoy the sensory experience and she would like make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So it was this idea that, you know, food is more than just the taste, right? It's all these other pieces of it. So that was like a a big memory I have every Sunday of walking into her house. But then she would still make me like what I wanted, which was like Wonder Bread, Jiffy, and like <laughs> Smucker's Strawberry Jam. 
Sorry, grandma. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you for making this like gorgeous pot roast for the family, but I'm just, I'm just going to do the wonder bread today. Was that, so I, we had Sundays at, at my grandma's house too, mm-hmm. for some of the podcast episodes that I've had uh, previously, I bring that up a lot. We used to live upstairs, yeah. downstairs from my grandparents, but then yeah. even when we didn't, we would still go venture off and travel there. And it was at the time, a smaller unit with, you know, my aunts and uncles and cousins. And then of course, mm-hmm. as everybody started growing and having babies and we started losing that connection, but that was a really important time in a lot of my years growing up where I would actually play a role in the kitchen in making, yeah. the food, helping set the table or whatever. Yeah. Were you hands-on in any way, whether it was at your grandma's or in your family home? Um, no, <laughs> it's a hard no. Um, so Specifically for my grandma, she was very like, this is my kitchen. You can, and I remember I would sit at the table. I remember she had like a vinyl tablecloth that I loved. So I would sit at the table and like watch her, but it was very much like, you know, just watching a master at work. Like don't get in her way, just kind of sit and hang. Um, So that was one piece. And then at home, we, my dad actually did all the cooking growing up. So it was a little, little reverse roles there for the time. And it was again, like we would watch but weren't really invited to participate in it. And I think about that actually a lot now, knowing like the work that I do is one way to get kids to really enjoy the meal is to help them help in the preparation of the meal. So um, I, we're trying to do it a little differently in our world now, but I think that that may have been a piece of why I was resistant because it was like an off limits thing until it was time to sit at the table. I want to delve a little deeper into the picky eatingness of you as a child, because like sure. you said, you, you recognize it now at the time, did your family try to encourage you to try new things or force feed you anything? And did you notice aversions and what exactly were the aversions? Was it again, taste, smell, texture? Tell yeah. us a little bit about like the behind the scenes mentality of a child who be, who is a picky eater yeah. that maybe grows up to I'm assuming not be one anymore. More adventurous. I would say I'm not like the most, but you know, I I eat more veggies now than I have when I was, you know, six. Um, So for me, the aversion was always texture. So like, I I still love smells and I love taste, but texture is not, that was what would like kind of trip me up. Um, And I think my parents did a really good job with the knowledge that they had of you're going to sit at the table until you eat this, you're going to, you know, this is you can't have anything else until this is off your plate, like a lot of kind of those old school methods, which is what was available at the time. I, my mom will still tell the story of me being like, cool, I'll just hang at this table. I guess I'll put my head on the table and sleep here tonight until it's time for school tomorrow. Great. And so it was never productive. (laughs) So they really, you know, it it wasn't ever force feeding. It was very much like, hey, you're cool. You can sit at the table, but you're not getting up until this is done. And then I was like, that's fine. I'm a willful little girl. That's happy to hang here. Happy to just, I'll I'll stand in uh, my power here next to my plate of food and say no. Um, And then, you know, I think they tried that for a while. And then it was just kind of like, what do you want for dinner? And I'm like, bagel with cream cheese. They're like, great. We'll give you that then. So it was kind of like they tried. And then it was like, what are we going to do? At least you opted for something along the lines of whole somewhat nutritious food versus can I just have a dish of ice cream instead and then then just uh, (laughs) complying but it's funny that you mentioned the textures for Mm -hmm. sure like this is something that I know and you'll probably go a little bit more into this as well with the amount of time it takes children especially at a really early age to just like experiment with things like maybe you know, you put things out and all they do is just touch and mash things up. Maybe sometimes they put it to their mouth and they spit it back out again. So I don't really, I I recognize the fact that parents don't often feel like they have the patience to sit or maybe even the money to spend on Mm -hmm. wasting food in that sense. And then of course the after effects of being held hostage, I like to say with, you know, the clean plate club Mm -hmm. where now I recognize in myself, I tend to binge on things because I feel like that's my role. Like it's my responsibility Mm -hmm. to hoover up everything in front of me that if I've taken more on my plate, if I've given myself a larger portion or, you know, my eyes are bigger than my stomach, then it's my responsibility to make sure I do something with it. And so even now, you know, some 40 something, 50 years later, I'm still recognizing like, can you, it's okay to step away. It's okay to say I I can't eat anymore. It's okay to do that. And Mm -hmm. I think that's also something that 
I recognize when I'm working with my own patients and clients too, that we do yeah. kind of go back in time, like what brings up yes. these behaviors and so on, uh, how they affect you as an, as an yeah. adult. So can and I even think about it, sorry, from like okay. an intergenerational perspective, mm -hmm. because you know, that's all intergenerational. That's how we got here. Right. Yeah. And, and so yeah, right, the role that maybe in famine or, you know, how little mm -hmm. limited they had, it's like, listen, we're lucky enough to have this food. We don't just yeah. bring it away. Yeah. Yeah. I think about my mother's father was raised like deep in the depression, like hungry, hungry, hungry kids. So her growing up was like, you better finish everything in front of you because we don't know where our next meal is coming. Yep. And so that's how she was raised. And then so for me to be like, no, get your delicious broccoli away from me. This is, I just want Count Chocula, whatever, right? Is a, It feels like a slap in the face at the time. And you and that's primitive, right? That's in you from the generations before you. So it can be really triggering. Yes. And I've also, in my family and in some other cultures as well. So I grew up Italian. My family okay. were all born and raised in Italy. And then they eventually came over to the United States. Wow. They also treated food as love. Yes. And so yes. not only were you denying the resources placed in front of you, but you were also telling them, I do not love you if I don't finish these lima beans. Yeah. And that's a really tough thing as a kid to, you know, to kind of wrap your head around. And I also now, of course, we've made peace with some of those things like, no, no, though, those are two separate ideas. Yep. But that's the thing that happens. You yeah. know, I'm here providing for you. I want to nourish you. And I also spent so mm -hmm. much time in the kitchen making these wonderful meals. How, you know, how dare you offend yeah. me or, you know, it's, it's an emotional attachment in that sense Very much so. that a lot of us can. Yeah. I'm married in Italian. So like, like his father's from Italy, Italian. And so when we got together and he would like make this delicious meal, I'm like, you know what? I just, I want to grab a pizza tonight. And he'd be like, what are you doing? What? Yeah. So that was, and that's a whole nother podcast we could do about like bringing two different like cultures together in the kitchen and also values, right? Because his food was valued in his, their dinner time was valued in his family in a very like sacred way. Whereas, you know, I had two working parents, grab some dinner, do what you can. And so that kind of coming together was quite a like shock to our like marital system when we started having kids. One of those things we discuss now in therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Should we zoom in our couples counselor? Bring them on in. They've got some ideas too. Well, I have so many questions on this too. I feel like I'm already yeah. jumping ahead. So let me Sorry. start off with the next steps in the sense sure. of how you came about in your more independent years, what were some of the things that you noticed changing mm -hmm. or staying the same in the role that food played, but also whoever, whoever, and whatever you were responsible for, once you started buying your own food, making your own food, how did yeah. that, that younger picky eater, you start being able to feed herself later on <laughs> in her adult years. And then we'll talk a little bit too about the role that you play with yeah. nourishing and providing mm -hmm. for your family now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny that you say that can feed yourself because my husband would argue that I don't feed myself because he still does a lot of cooking. He's like, you did a lot of cooking. You said you feed yourself. I think you need to go fact check that. Um, so I think it really started for me when I got to college, right? Cause then you're like, Oh, okay. What am I going to do? And I was really lucky. I went to college in New York city. And so it was like a really diverse community. I was all of a sudden, like I told you, I came from like Gilmore girls, Connecticut. And then I went to college in New York city and I was all of a sudden exposed to like a lot of different types of food, right? A lot of different types of, you know, um, flavors and whatever. And so I stayed very much in my bubble. Like if you like were to ask my college roommates, they'd be like, oh yeah, she definitely had like pasta and pizza probably, you know, the first three years of life. Um, and then what it's interesting because then as my like roommates started to cook or make different things and like invite me in, I'd be like curious about it. And so that opened me up a little bit more. Um, and then just going to like different restaurants, just like I had never had Indian food before. So like this idea of like, oh, these flavors, they smell delicious and all these. And so I got more adventurous as I was exposed to more and then also invited into the process a little bit. And then really it shifted tremendously when I met my husband because and I was in my early 20s at the time because he had like valued food so much and like talked about it in like such a romantic way that I was like well maybe this, there's something to this and that's when I really jumped out of my like you know these are the four foods I eat and whatever and I went into more of like oh well this this looks I guess artichoke could be yummy let's look like and so it was that exposure and also that kind of 
you know, I do use the word like sacredness around it, that I was like, am I missing something here by, you know, not indulging in this thing that I've, I've told the story to myself, like, that's not for me. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And I also really appreciate just the process through which you started recognizing your own personal needs and also the ability to open up. And that word exposure comes up a lot too in some of our discussions, especially since you did have the ability to be in such a diverse community where I think over the course of maybe even the last two to three decades, we've started seeing even smaller towns having more of like Mm -hmm. a downtown area or like a cultural section where you can venture out in places that might have been a little bit more rural or out of the way that now we do have some like artsy places that people can go and check things out. So this is again, a true testament just to the ability of the human person to recognize their innate needs in that sense. Mm -hmm. I think these external factors that we grow up with where we get force fed or accommodated in some way, when we have some aversions to things, things take time. They might take two years. They might take 20 Mm -hmm. years before we start (laughs) opening up ourselves to things. So I really love that you allowed yourself to glean from the outside factors and influences and just, you know, open up and be a little bit more adventurous in that way. Yeah. Yeah. How does that make you feel? If you don't mind me. Yeah. <laughs> My therapy term. Yeah. How does it make you, feel? Um, you know, I, it's interesting because it does feel very much like a journey, right? When I look and also this can sound weird, but it almost makes me a little bit sad too. Like I didn't miss a lot. Right. I feel like it, experimenting and adventuring in, in what I could have enjoyed earlier on, but also it feels pretty great that I've taken this arc, right? That this journey of, you know, a kid that would literally like, and it's funny because I, I'll tell clients that I work with now, you know, I work with kids with picky eaters sometimes. And I'm like, I, I literally don't think I ate anything but butter noodles for a solid, like five to six years. I'm still here. Right. I, you know, I made it. So I also like to take the pressure off. And at the same time, you know, know that it's, it's a, it's an arc, right? It's not this just like, it's either happening or it's not, it's experimentation. And that makes me feel like, okay, there's hope for anybody out there, right? There's hope if it's, you know, take, it may have taken some time, but you get to like where you need to be, if you're willing to kind of be a little more vulnerable and a little open about it. Yeah. I appreciate that too, because I think the pressure, like you said, taking the pressure off of the parents or the providers in that way that your child's not going to starve just because they threw a tantrum for Mm -hmm. one meal. Obviously there might be extreme cases and that's what monitoring, you know, the development of your child at your pediatrician visits entails, but it's okay sometimes where they're just off put by something and it's more stress on probably you to try to find a way to accommodate them and just, you know, allow that to just pass. And like you said, subsist on butter noodles for an entire year. So walk us through now, does any of what you've just been talking about play a role in the journey to who you are now? And if so, how did that work? If not, how did you get involved in this career? Yeah. Um, Great question. So a lot of it is understanding how we, so what I do know is thinking about young experiences, right? So my specialty is something called infant and early childhood mental health. And when I went back to school, for like the sixth time for infant mental health. And my husband was like, are there a lot of crazy babies out there? What are you talking about? What is infant mental health? That doesn't even make sense. The idea, the main tenant behind it is babies, toddlers, children, you know, up to like preteens, teens are only as socially and emotionally and mentally healthy as their caregivers, as the people that are surrounding them. That being said, I really started to understand how we emotionally encode things early on in life, right? So the connection between what we're experiencing, like either at the dinner table, what we're experiencing when we're feeding young children, like, yes, it's like sustenance and it's nutrients and all that stuff, but it's also this like emotional encoding at the same time. And so I try to now go for, how do you want your kid to feel at dinner time, right? What do you want them? Because if the feeling around it is stressful and there's a feeling around it is resentful and I made this meal and you're going to eat it or fear-based like there are people that don't have food and you need to eat like if that's the emotions that are getting encoded with the meals that we're having and so I think in a way you know I think I definitely had texture sensitivity significantly when I was young it's you know played out more like I've kind of overcome it through the years but the fact that it didn't really feel that stressful growing up right it didn't feel like 
you know, there was this pressure on it and my parents were able to kind of relax around it, allowed me to take my own journey with it. So that's the idea of supporting families with young children, right? Like, how do you want them to feel in these moments? Dinner's more than just getting nutrients into your body. It's about like, how are we connecting as a family? What are we doing? And that if we take it more lightly and like more playfully, because I'm a play therapist. So if we take it a little more playfully, they're just going to feel good. And then they're going to be more open to experimentation. We're currently recording on Zoom for those listeners who don't know that I do this sometimes. You can see me scribbling yeah. away. And I told yeah. you, I, t- I take <laughs> notes, like incessant notes. Yeah. And I'm writing some things down because I've shared before. I'm also an adjunct lecturer up here in uh, one of the, CUNY, the city university schools, Lehman College in the Bronx. Nice. And I teach life cycle nutrition. So we go through mm. preconception all the way till older adult ages. Yeah. And when we hover around that whole infancy up until pre-adolescence or so, mm-hmm. I have conversations with my students about, let's talk about our own personal experiences as children. What do you remember the language being used around yeah. the dinner table? Because then also did your care providers have their own trauma or whatever mm-hmm. their experiences mm-hmm. were that trickled down? Or did they end up being able to overcome those things and have you engage in a much more healthier relationship with food. So we talk about these words, like the language of, you know, people are starving, like you are as a six-year-old responsible for (laughs) global, global poverty and welfare. We talk about language like, you know, I don't want you getting made fun of because you're too skinny or too fat. And then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden now we're talking about body image and seeing disordered eating patterns as young as four, six, nine years old sometimes. And then also in a more nutrient uh, based thing, we're, we're learning also about research bases where early introduction of food allergies are encouraged, like six months when you start mm-hmm. in- including complementary foods, we start saying yeah. expose your child to like, you know, a qu- an eighth of a teaspoon of like peanut butter or something like yeah. that, just to get them because the more you expose, the more, mm-hmm. the less likely they will have allergies or illnesses down the line. But people are afraid of all that. Yeah. And also in other outside environments, like the, you know, daycare center or second grade elementary school, whatever your child is going outside of the home, they might have to abide by certain rules and regulations within that structure too. So it always feels like there's so many different parts that are being played around that, that center of that child. And so I appreciate that, that, you know, they're taking in all of these external factors and forces and energies and the language and the philosophies, beliefs, thought patterns, even in infancy, they're able to absorb that. My kids each have a lot of food allergies, like dairy, nuts, like fish, all the things. And we, you know, my husband, and I don't have those allergies, so it's a new world for us. But one of my um, like main goals as a parent and then also as a professional is to reduce the anxiety around it. Because I think sometimes, sometimes when kids do have food allergies, the anxiety around that creates a lot of disordered eating. And so, you know, it's kind of a shock to find out like, oh my God, my kid has to avoid all this stuff. And, you know, that's a whole deep dive we could get into, but the idea around reminding your kids that like, Hey, it's okay to experiment with things. You know, again, we're following our medical professionals advice, but it's okay. Like you don't have to be afraid of food. And that I think can be really anxiety inducing. And I see actually more kids coming to my practice as they're getting older, really afraid to like, what if, what happens if I'm exposed? What happens? And so that's a whole nother piece of it is if, if as the parent, as the caregiver, we don't project that anxiety onto the situation, they're much less likely to develop anxiety around it. And I, I think along those lines too, is in the same conversation, people who are uh, overseeing children with neurodivergence as well. Mm -hmm. This is also something that can cause a lot of stress and frustration because there might be food jags or aversions to things. Or, you know, I often, when I'm sharing this information with my students as well, I often think of the Big Bang Theory of Sheldon's character for anybody who knows Sheldon and the Big Bang Theory where he's like, is it Tuesday? Because Tuesdays is when we have French toast. Or did you get hot mustard or yellow mustard? Because I only eat the yellow mustard. So that can also be really anxiety producing. And so I'm so grateful for people like you who help people 
who are in those situations of like, it's cool. That's okay. We'll teach you strategies on how to manage these things. And then in turn, Mm -hmm. depending on the severity or the extremity of whatever the situation of allergens or neurodivergence is, that child will grow up to understand their condition a little bit better too, and be able to manage it. So you, you relieve that, like you said, that stress, that fear and that anxiety. So can you tell us a little bit about what a current I, usually I say day, but really let's say week in the life of you yeah. is like, what are yeah. some things that you do in your practice? What are some things that mm-hmm. you do for your family? What are some things that you do for yourself as well? Because we are in the, yeah. you know, the wellness area, the healthcare well, providers yeah. area, and hopefully we lead and live by example, but we're also human. So yeah. share with us a little bit about a week in the life of you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ooh, it's so different. It's like, tell me what week you're on and I'll tell you where, where my story starts. Um, one thing we do, and this is something we started, my husband and I started probably like six months ago is every Sunday night we sit and we do our Sunday night schedule. It like pops up on my reminder, like Sunday night scheduling. And that is a hack I got from Kate Northrup. I don't know if you know Kate Northrup. She does. Yeah. So um, she's like, it'll make your life so much easier. Spend a half an hour with your spouse and sitting down. And it has been a game changer. And part of that Sunday night schedule is a meal plan, right? Like, let's just think, because my husband, my husband does all the cooking, but he, I do the shopping and he also doesn't always think about on Sunday, what food we're going to need for Wednesday, right? So to sit down and be like, Hey, let's talk about what we're going to eat at every meal, it like reduces conflict in our marriage. It reduces like, like anxiety, but if, are we going to have all the ingredients? So that's a big piece of like, you know, keeping our family in that stable position. So that Sunday night planning, I literally call it like our church. I'm like, it's our sacred time. Sunday night planning is happening. Um, and so we do that. So that's the way that we like to start the week. And then typically I do a lot of, um, you know, I try to, look at my week and kind of decide like I'm going to be doing a lot of individual clients I do some group programs but I really try to keep like a day which is for me and typically it's on Friday so I'll do kind of a lot of um one-on-one clients I switched I used to do a lot of individual play therapy with kids which I still think there's a great place for but I've really switched my practice to supporting parents because like I was saying before your mental health is linked to your kids mental health so working with parents and teaching them kind of how to shift the environment around their kids to either do anxiety or promote cooperation that's the goal right because then it provides like quicker change longer lasting change and then they have the skills to carry them through life not just like oh did the therapist fix my kid in the eight weeks that they were seeing them so I do a lot of one-on-one consultations with parents I also do a group program with parents um and that's kind of where like the the days go for the week and then in the evenings we really try to have family time. Like I wasn't raised in a family where we sat for dinner. Like it just wasn't part of the culture of our family. Like I said, we had two busy working parents, but we really try to prioritize it mostly because it's as my kids are getting older and they're getting busier, the it's starting to crack, right? It's like, I was like, one of those times going to be where my kids don't need me as much anymore. I'm like, oh my God, the times are coming. They're coming. And so prioritizing those like weeknight dinners are significant because that's when you hear the stuff, right? That's when you hear like, someone's always mean to me at aftercare and, you know, like, oh, today in kickball, we did this and whatever. And that's where you hear the stories. And so um, that's what I try to prioritize for the evenings. And then one other thing is I always say, we got to move our bodies every day. So whether it's like a family walk, whether it's like, you know, my son's really into basketball right now, my daughter and I do dance parties all the time. So we try to have like part of that as our, you know, I don't call it exercise. I'm like, we got to move our bodies. We always feel good. We move our bodies. What are we going to do? So that's kind of a piece of it. And then I, I call it like my Fridays for me. And in that day is when I kind of I call it like I'm the CEO of the house. That's when I do like the house planning, if that makes sense. So whether it's, you know, making sure we're having plans for the weekend or whether it's, you know, making sure that the groceries are bought, whatever it is, the doctor's appointment scheduled, all that stuff kind of falls into that. But I also try to do something just for me, whether it's like a yoga class or a dance class, something that, you know, fills my cup and fills my little soul there too. Well, I will say, being that we are recording this on a Friday, thank you yeah. for sacrificing some of, of your me time Happy to there. do it. No, this is me time. This is filling uh, me up. Okay, this counts as it. This is good. Yes. This, is good. this also makes me nerd out because the last couple of years have been a little bit erratic in my life, but I used to be that kind of person that kind of had yes. that nice schedule and now it just feels a little bit all over the place. So I love that 
even though there's structure to it, there's still fun. There's still time to enjoy. There's still time, as you mentioned before, with what you do in your practice as well, that social connection, the ability to talk to your family as well. The movement plays a huge role. Like it doesn't always have to be going to the gym. Mm -hmm. This is for anybody, right? Just get up and take a walk around the block, move whatever you can. Also what you said too, about the Sunday night planning. I think that also sets the tone for the rest of the week. Like this is going to be very busy with events, or we'll be able to do takeout one night or whatever it is that you're doing there. And then I also wanted to find out too, because I was looking at your website as I like to prepare my notes and stuff. And when I talk to my students, and as we've mentioned on the podcast as well, the the term pediatrics, when we were looking Mm -hmm. at that population, that patient population, that really spans from zero to 20. And we've had other people on the podcast before who work with a variety of different ages. Where do you start and stop as far as the people that you're talking to or the parents who are parents of a certain age range, or does it it can go up until like college years in that sense, but the cap. Yep. So I typically, like I start working with families prenatally, right? When they're, so I'm, I, another side note, I don't think I showed this, but I'm a birth doula as well. Um, yeah. So I don't practice as often now because with, you know, two kids, it's hard to be on call and be like, peace out. I'm going to a 36 hour birth. Good luck. Get yourself home. Um, but so I don't do that as much now. Um, so I really work prenatally and, and that's part of the infant health perspective, which is you know, I always say like your babies are born in your mind, right? Like what you imagine for your baby is their first story of their life. And that, you know, for me was when I was like six years old and playing dolls, right? So the story of your family doesn't start when you give birth. Like the story of your family starts in your imagination. Yeah. So, you know, I work with people prenatally because there's a lot of anxiety. Like my life goal is just to reduce the anxiety in the world. That's like number one (laughs) life goal, bring it down. Um, so I start working with families prenatally to talk about like, whether what your visions are for your family, what kind of parent you feel like you're going to be. And then it's like, I laugh, like, you know, I remember I was sitting with a mom once and she was like, well, I think when my baby's like four to six weeks, I'm going to host this party. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. This is good for you. Can we check back in on that? Like six weeks later, she's like, just on the couch, like, I can't sleep. I'm like covered in liquids. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's all right. You don't know what you don't know. Um, so I would start prenatally in that kind of perspective. And then I really only work with kids up until 10. I kind of tap out around adolescence. I'm like, peace out. Um, and I really do that because the early years are gold, right? That crucial birth to three of when, you know, we're really setting our foundations for our understanding of the world, of our place in it. Um, is this place safe? Is it scary? Those implicit memories, right, which happen before we have language, before, you know, that prefrontal cortex is developed, is so significant in how we operate in the world that I'm like, that's where you get the most bang for your buck. If I can help families birth three and up to birth to 10, like, you know, we're, the brains are very plastic our entire lives, but like, that's kind of the window I love to work with. Um, that if I can support families in understanding how to have just more connectedness, more playfulness, um, you know, more togetherness. And I think that's what sets them on a trajectory then later on. Like, I kind of say it's much easier. I kind of think of it like wet cement. It's much easier to like form cement when it's just getting poured than if it's already hardened. And like, we can still change it when it's hardened, but we need like jackhammers and big tools and big material. Whereas if it's wet cement, whatever we can, however we shape it is what it's going to be. So I really focus on the birth to 10. I think, I think that's fantastic. And I use similar analogies as well when I'm talking about food and nourishment of, you know, putting gas in your car and making sure that you can move through the day energized versus running on literally running on empty. And then, Mm -hmm. uh, and there's also, again, the discussion of it's never too late to start certain things, but sometimes it's a little bit more difficult or challenging. So I like to say, yeah, it's never too early and it's never too late. Yeah. Exactly. I I made some notes along the way because I don't think I shared this with you, but one of my first ever dietetics positions was in a high risk OBGYN office in Midtown. And so I worked with preconception, prenatal, uh, also as the, you know, trimesters progressed, if anybody got diagnosed with gestational Mm -hmm. diabetes, they would be sent to me. And there was a lot of handholding, especially for first time parents of helping them set the ground rules. And the sometimes also the conflict of the two humans that have joined together to create mm-hmm. another human. 
<laughs> of, you know, this is how I, like you were saying, right? Yeah. This is how I was raised and this is how you were raised. And then I kind of played mediator sometimes when it came to food and making sure that not just the pregnant person yes. was being nourished, but that you're also nourishing in utero to mm-hmm. be mindful of your baby's development. Yeah. And I wanted to also point out too, because a lot of my listeners are in the wellness world. A lot of them mm-hmm. are also students or people who are going back to school to start a new career. And we've also talked about this in how we met in that Facebook group as well about the the niche, right? The niche that we create in our business pursuits as business people, as mm-hmm. healthcare providers helps us specialize in certain things. And then yeah. as the patient or the client looking for that specialty. So while yeah. I'm fine with you going to whomever to treat whatever, I also encourage people to focus on somebody who they might know a little bit more about your yeah. particular situation. So in the yeah. case of me with dietetics, I work with high-risk prenatal counseling. I work with diabetes mm-hmm. prevention and management, but I don't do things like kidney and liver issues or gastrointestinal yeah. things because they're a little bit outside of my comfort zone and yeah. somewhat of my scope. So I really like that you kind of put the cap on it where it's like, this yeah. is where I'm focusing on and that malleability that happens there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you do the best work that way too, because I mean, it's like so cliche, but you got to do what lights you up, right? You're going to be doing it all day, every day. And so when I, and, and so for some of my colleagues that they like get lit up by adolescence, like they love the adolescent brain. I'm like, oh my God, I could never, that's awesome. Good for you. But they're like, how do you work with a three-year-old? I'm like, that's where the gold is. So I think you, the niche comes from what am I passionate about? What am I drawn to? And if you try to get so general, you're right. Like a generalist can be certainly helpful, but like, if I'm looking for help with my four-year-old, I want someone that's seen a thousand four-year-olds, right? I want to know what this person knows about this piece of development. And so, you know, that's why I think that's really comforting when I work with families. Sometimes I'm like, I've seen this a lot. I've seen it all before. I've been here like a million times with a million different families. And there's something comforting in that. Like, oh, you understand the exact place that I'm in at this moment. And, you know, I'll have families that like call me and they have like a 15 year old, but like, we, we heard you're good. I'm like, yeah, but not for you. Like not in this moment. Right. And so this idea, I think it's important to, it feels sometimes limiting, like, well, but I could reach bigger audiences and more people, but I'm like, but not as you wouldn't get the depth, right. You don't get the depth and the passion. And that's what growth comes from anyway. You got to go deep to go big, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do feel it's part of what we call that interdisciplinary team. I'm happy to refer you out to something that I'm not comfortable with because I actually want to talk a little about that, about resources and the ways that we professionally develop within our own professions. So aside from the Facebook group that we went into, which was more specific to business building, are Mm -hmm. there other things that you do? How do you keep current with whatever's going on in the world of your profession? Um, Are there conferences? Are there things that are required or mandated within your credentials? Can you tell just for anybody who's interested, can you tell us a little bit about the career trajectory? Yes. Yeah. So great question. So I am a licensed professional counselor, which is similar to like a social worker, you know, licensed psychotherapist. Um, So I, it's interesting because I started my college career as a uh, in child psychiatry. And then I was like, oh, wait, you can major in film? Yes, please. I didn't know you could make movies for a living. <laughs> so I switched and I became a film major. And I worked in that arena for a while, which I really liked. And then I ended up working for the Tribeca Film Festival, doing um, the Tribeca Film Institute. And I helped some of their youth programming of the basically teaching social activism, teaching self-expression through filmmaking for New York City public school kids. And then I was like, oh, this is what I love. I forgot. Like the, it was fun and shiny to work in movies for a while, but th- I, this is my heart. And so from there, I went on to get a graduate degree in counseling um, and I worked in schools for a little bit. So the idea for working as a like a professional counselor, a social worker, a therapist in that way, you you kind of start with this base education, right? And you can get that in many places. But then you have to figure out where is that, where are you going to take it from there? And I still remember I finished my program. I was in a school system. I had my first, it was literally my first phone call. And it was this mom that's like, hey, my first grader's coming into your school. She's selectively mute. And I'm like, Googling, how to help selectively mute? Because I think the education is foundational, but there's nothing like being in the world, right? So there's nothing. And so that's when I was like, I'm going to need more help. Like the the 18, whatever years I just did a school ain't enough. And so that's where I started to realize 
where's my tribe? Where's my community? And that's when, you know, I immediately started to like reach out to people that knew more than me. And so I've always been in either individual supervision, like with one-on-one person that can help me or groups. Um, I can't, you know, for anyone that's looking to work in the mental health profession, you cannot do it alone. You cannot do it solo. You have to be in a group. You have, I mean, that's what you have to practice in a group, but you have to have people you can turn to when you're, Hey, I'm a little out of my depth here, whether it's like colleagues, friends. So that's where I get a lot of my support and also a lot of my fire. Right. And so we meet sometimes monthly and then that's one piece of it. And then keeping, you know, understanding, especially the last, you know, kind of COVID times, this idea of trauma, right. And this idea of we've all been through kind of like big and little traumas. And especially since 2020, you know, our families have been pretty traumatized. And so I think that my deep dive now into like healing nervous systems and doing things that are more mind body connected than just like talk out your problems, but like your body needs to feel safe. Right. So getting into professional development, whether it's like Peter Levine, you know, who does a lot of, um, you know, understanding of the somatic methods of therapy. So keeping yourself sharp and that, and that's, that's something I never would have delved into when I first started, I would have been like, what are you talking about? The body keeps the score. That doesn't make any sense. But now I'm like, well, this is what it is. This is the future. So you have to keep evolving, keep developing. You know, I'm very much like, I would love to stay in school for the rest of my life. And I think my husband thought I was going to for a little while. He's like, are you going to use the education at any point? Um, But I think that remembering that we're lifelong learners, right? This idea that I'm soaking in information all the time and every bit, every conference that I go to, every workshop that I take, every podcast that I listen to, like it's informing my practice and it's informing the way I can help people. I really appreciate all that insight. I'm also trying to keep my eye on the time here because I have about a million more questions (laughs) to ask you, but I'll I'll probably limit it to about three because the things that you mentioned too, just as far as the credentialing and the professional uh, aspect of what we're discussing. You mentioned the thing about supervision as a dietitian, we don't get that. And a mm. lot of us want to go in private practice and we are allowed to right yeah. out of the gate with nothing, no Oof, experience. And it's very challenging. And we also try to, inc- like, I try to encourage my students, if you're planning mm-hmm. on working on your own, cause we don't make the best salary sometimes yeah. if you're planning on working on your own, try to set up a mentorship. And I'm actually trying to that's also why I was in that Facebook group. I'm trying to yeah. include as part of my services, mentorship and coaching and supervision yes. for now that I've been in it for about six years or so, I'm trying to give the uh, experience back. But I also talk to my students and anyone who's kind of newly credentialed, as you said, you cannot possibly know all of the things you need to know just from your school's curriculum. Like yeah. you just, you yeah. can't, there's only yeah. so much that will fit in there. So it's important that in our profession, we have to maintain a certain amount of continuing education units sure. over the course yep. of X amount of years to, you know, keep current and all that. But I also say, start now, start yeah. attending things, learn the language, even if yep. it's something like counseling, which we don't, it's so much of the behavioral part of what we do, but we don't get the actual training of it in school. Yeah. Because again, that could be something that we should be referring out to, but we still have to have discussions of yeah. how do your behaviors affect your, yeah. your choices for food. I say to them, just pay attention to your everyday conversations. Yes. When you're listening to people who, I don't know, like your, you know, your best friend's complaining about their husband or whatever, and you're maybe prone to say, you know, that guy sucks or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Instead, <laughs> uh, you know, that sounds really challenging. What yeah, do you think? Tell me more about it. Yeah. Tell me more about it. Use your open-ended yes. And just yeah. like, just experiment and experience and try to practice on literally everybody. That everybody. And what I say, even though, because the field that I'm in, the infant early childhood mental health, it's interdisciplinary. So we're working with, you know, occupational therapists, dietitians, working with everybody. And I often tell people what, you know, if you may not be doing therapy, but your work is therapeutic, right? And that's really important that you hold that same kind of mind space around it. Like my work is therapeutic. I may not be like, you know, the person that sits when you lay, lay down on the couch, but who cares about that anyway? Like you're still doing therapeutic work. And I think paying attention to your language and even my favorite favorite thing to say is I wonder right like I wonder I wonder why he's bothering you so much or like I wonder why I want you know just I wonder and I think using that phrase sometimes allows people to be more open and vulnerable and not like why are you still with him it's like hmm, I wonder what uh what need he's meeting for you 
right? So this idea that like you're in this dynamic with somebody and not I'm the person that knows it and I'm going to give it to you. That's exa- That was one of the points I was actually going to chime in on in yeah. it's a mutually beneficial relationship, no matter what that relationship is, you play a role in helping people maybe extract. And mm-hmm. I often say, right, communication is what the listener does. So yeah. I'm providing you with information, but how are you receiving it on that end? What do mm-hmm. I need to do to tailor my language? What do I need to do to make you feel more comfortable? How do we make our communication better and more dynamic. (laughs) I want to, uh, with the time that we have left, I want to talk a little bit more about, first of all, was there anything that we did not cover that we might've missed that I didn't ask that you might want to share with our listeners before we start wrapping up? Yeah, I would think, you know, just from the perspective of working with families with young kids is remembering two things. Number one, remembering what a sensory experience eating and feeding your child can be. I'm talking from like, you know, bottle breastfeeding up because, you know, when we do so many studies about like, you know, feeding infants, and I'm sure you're well-versed in this as well, but this idea that it's it's not just about the nutrients, it's about the touch. It's about the tone we're talking with them about. It's about the eye gaze. And I even think about, I was in a really interesting position that I didn't have an iPhone when my son was born that I got an iPhone before my daughter was born. And I noticed when I would be feeding her, I would just be looking at my phone, which was totally different than my experience with my son. And I had to really catch myself and be like, he got so much eye gaze from me. He got so much attention. She's getting like my cheek as I stare at this weird light, right? So it's remembering that it's a sensory experience, not just like a fill the nutrients experience and to make it playful and fun as much as you can. Like, I just think about, You know, if you're feeding a toddler and they're resistant and you make it an airplane and you make it this, like that's using play to get everyone's needs met. And sometimes as parents, we're so, especially today, like we've got to get this done, then we got to get to ballet, and then we got this, and and it's like, hey, let's open this up and let's play a little bit. My favorite intervention when kids are really struggling with like sitting at the dinner table or my kids running around is make it a fancy dinner. Get it, like light some candles, make it fun, make it fancy, make it free. And the kid's going to be much more like, like, oh, this is special. This is playful. This is fun. And you don't do that every night, but you do it every now and then. And you can be like, oh, wow, this is reprogramming their neural pathways to be like, oh, I sit at the table and I use my quote unquote manners, whatever that might look like. So when we incorporate a little more playfulness into it, like, again, I'm a play therapist. It's my language. It just, everything gets easier. Everything gets easier just by you saying those things made me hearken back to some of the things that I used to do to enjoy life. (laughs) I don't do them anymore because we just came up on what is it? The vernal equinox, right? We turned into spring. Every time spring would happen, I would go outside and I do cartwheels up and down the street. Oh, I love it. And Carly, I'm talking like up until the age of 30 something. So not like when I was a kid, I was like, it's spring. It's spring. I don't even know if I could physically do one anymore. So yeah. maybe that will be my goal. Yeah. You can roll. Just roll can, it a lot. Not on, not on the New York City streets, no, but okay. maybe, well, maybe I'll go into one of the parks or something and do that. Yes, a play. Like the more we can incorporate exactly. play into our life, like exactly. the easier things are going to get. Physically and mentally, like I can, mm-hmm. you know, you you release a lot of the tension in the brain and in the body when you're doing stuff. I love that. I'm glad I asked yeah. you. So obviously I'll be including where to find you on the yeah. show notes, yeah. but tell us a little bit about what some of the future you might be. Are you growing, hey. expanding? Are, are there any things that we should be keeping an eye out for anything you want us to keep in mind. And then I'll ask you my two final questions. Okay, great. Yeah. So like I said, my specialty is really teaching parents play therapy techniques that, you know, they can use to kind of create more calm at home, more confidence in their kids and, you know, reduce anxiety in general. And so I've been doing that work like individually with families for well over a decade now. And my practice has been full for two years, right? Like I've not been able to take on more families and I literally get three to four calls a day. I mean, hello, welcome 2023 America. Um, kids are anxious. Turns out I've been feeling kind of stuck. And so I started growing in terms of how to reach more people and also give the support that parents really desperately need. Like they need it. There's no handbook that comes with this, especially parenting in this age and time. So what's great is that I also do a group coaching program, which is lovely because we really dive deep into using play therapy skills Um, That program is called PACE, Parenting All Children Effectively. And um, it's a deep dive into how to use play therapy skills at home. And also it's a community because that is what parents are missing. We don't parent in community like we have done for 
all of our years beyond like a generation or two. And so for parents to be able to get together, you know, we meet virtually so I can get everybody in the country um, and they can meet virtually on Zoom and be like, oh my gosh, my four-year-old did this. And like, oh my gosh, I feel your pain. My four-year-old did this. And then what's beautiful is that they see the progression of parents that have been with me a little bit longer using the skills saying like the meltdown ended. I did this, this, and then they didn't have a meltdown anymore. It's like, yes. And so I love building a tribe, right? I love building that piece of the community. I think that harkens back to like where I grew up was a real small town. So like I would after school just like go to my neighbor's house and she would give me like three Oreos while I did my spelling homework, right? So I miss community and I feel like this is a way to build pieces of that. Um, and then coming up probably early fall, I'm actually going to be doing um, how to really reduce anxiety in young kids. I'm going to do a course. I think it's going to be four to six weeks. I'll um, have more details on that soon. But really about how children, how parents can use skills to reduce anxiety in their kids under 10. Because, um, you know, it's every week in the headlines, it's a mental health crisis. Like we just, something came up this week about hospitalizations for kids 10 and under for psychiatric issues are going up. So, you know, that's not isolated. That's not like, oh, those are those kids. Like this is the soup that our kids are in right now. And so I really want to focus on reaching as wide of a net as I can and, and specifically my little domain. I think that's fantastic, especially since you said you are open to being in the virtual space that, you know, yeah. how wonderful to make this giant world so much smaller and being able to yeah. do that. That is fantastic. All right. So yeah. to wrap up, I always have these yeah. two questions that are somewhat related because me. there's, there's a food pun involved in there. Where is, <laughs> what is on your plate today? Today is Friday. It's kind it's of Friday. mid morning. <laughs> so what it's is Friday. physically literally on the plate as in yes. what, what are you planning on eating next? And then figuratively mm -hmm. what are you planning on doing with your your me day yeah. now with the rest of yeah your day? i love it um well you caught me on a great day because to this afternoon we are driving to a family wedding festivities for the weekend so my cousin who i was his nanny like i like basically nannied him when he was born is getting married and i can't believe it but it is going to be a party this weekend so when I leave you, I'm going to go pack up the suitcases and we are driving right outside of Philly to have this beautiful family party. And it's funny because my, I was talking to my aunt yesterday. I'm like, so what's on the menu for the rehearsal dinner night? And she goes, oh, it's a pasta bar. And I'm like, yes, pasta bar. So I'm super psyched about that. Um, so that's what I'll be doing in the next couple hours. I'm excited to be with family. We have not all been together since pre-2020. So this is a real big celebration in our families and our lives. Shout out Phil Christina, long marriage. Um, and so that's what I'll be doing today. And then, yeah, I'm trying to think, was there a second part of that question? But that's, well, you kind of answered it. If you're having pasta later, that pasta could also bar. Be <laughs> yeah. yeah, what you're doing and what you're eating. Yes. Those were the two questions. Yep. Yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, I'm a very huge carb carbohydrate advocate. So yes. enjoy your cart, your pasta <laughs> bar. And enjoy your time with your family. It, just like you said before, yeah. missing that sense of community, whether your blood relatives are outside yes. of complete strangers like us, that, you know, there, there's something about being in that environment and having that energy around you and yeah. being able to share experiences, stories, whatever. Carly, I cannot thank you enough for reaching out, saying yes to being on this podcast and then spending the time with me because I've I've loved our conversation. I'm Same. so excited to continuing more maybe collaborations down the line. And yeah. I wish you all the best with the rest of this day and your fun event. Thank you. And thank you for doing this. This is like sacred work, right? You are literally nourishing the people. So thank you for doing it. Thank you for having a forum where like you can bring other people together to talk about what they're passionate about. So I appreciate and I'm honored that you held the space for me today. Oh, I appreciate that too. That means a lot to me. Thank you so much for joining me this week on the Dish with Dina podcast. I am Dina D'Alessandro, registered dietitian, nutritionist, founder, and chief executive life changer at Dish with Dina, and I'm also your host. If you like what you heard, I would be so grateful if you could subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and share this with others who you think might benefit from what we have to offer on these episodes. You can also join my mailing list at dishwithdina.com or email me at info at dishwithdina.com with questions, comments, feedback, and if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode because everybody eats and we all have a story to share. I hope you tune back in next week when we dish again.